The scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and 11b through 32, the story of the prodigal son. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. <clears throat> I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. For the word of God of scri in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Okay, so what did you hear about what melts each other's heart? I'm watching the chat on Zoom too, so feel free to add something in here. I'm watching. Um, call it out. What'd you hear? Grandchild. Baptisms. Baptisms. <laughs> My dog. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I heard family and pets over here. Um, online. I, uh, I heard uh, little baby cactuses. <laughs> that was my favorite one. A favorite, fuzzy shawl. A favorite fuzzy shawl from your mother. It's great. So I remember when I um, became pregnant, it was um, about, we'd been married uh, about nine months, and I was a little sooner than I had wanted to be pregnant, and I wasn't sure about this whole motherhood thing in the first place, and so as we filled out our registry, I really wanted to have everything be really, like, cool and, like, not babyish, you know? So, a, like, choosing a denim car seat and a plaid stroller and... Um, you know, all of these things that I thought, you know, I'm not going to be one of those parents that has stuffed animals and bright colors everywhere, and, you know, it's going to be cool and calm and collected as a mother, of course. But then she came, and I realized she really liked those bright toys, and that could help her stay really quiet, and it turns out that the t next time I bought a stroller, um, I got one with all these animals all over it because it entertained her and it didn't bother me so much. And it's amazing how when you love somebody, you don't mind shifting and changing and becoming someone different. I left kind of my own sense of what was cool and was proper and what was me to, in order to help see them be happy and fulfilled and content. And similarly with dogs, I, when we got our first dog, I was like, the dog should be outside, the dog does not go on the furniture, the dog does not rule the house, and if you've been in my house, none of those things are true. <laughs> the dog sleeps with me every night, and they, you know, they're on the couch, and um, these are just small ways that love can mess with us. When we love someone, we sacrifice a lot for their well-being. Love breaks us open and messes with what we think the way and the way we think life should be. So here we are at this very familiar story to many of us, the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the most well-known and beloved stories that Jesus told, and for good reason. It's a story that com comforts us, and it's a story that confronts us. We're so used to reading this story that sometimes it's easy to forget what a shock this story would have been in its context. The first way is just the son's request 
he asks for his inheritance before his father dies. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nowlin quotes Kenneth Bailey, who traveled all over the Middle East in um, interviewing nomadic tribes. And he says, for over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father is still living. The answer has always been empathetically, emphatically, sorry, emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. The son wants his father dead. The second thing that's shocking about this story, especially in his in this context is just that the father didn't beat him, that the father complied with his wishes, that the father allowed him to go and take what was his upon his death with him. And then third shocker, the father works with, or the son goes and works with pigs, which is the un most unclean animals in the Jewish faith, the dirtiest of dirty work, feeding them, cleaning up after them he's defiling himself and even at the end of the or at the end of his time there envying these unclean animals but then the the son comes back and as he's coming back just intending to be a servant in his father's house the father picks up his robes and runs and here's the the fourth shock in the story is that any self-respecting Middle Eastern father would not pick up his robes, revealing his legs and his ankles and go in a full out run. This act was an act of dishonor. There's a fifth one that I hadn't realized until I was looking at it again this week, and that is that it would also have been considered rude for the father to leave the guests when the older son came home and was, was throwing a bit of a fit in the back, it would have been rude for the father to have left his party and gone and be with his son. It was rude to leave his guests. So this is a father with no standards to uphold, willing to break all cultural norms and societal rules to love his sons. As I read the story again, I kept asking why why would the son wish his father dead and run off with his inheritance? Why would the older son be so jealous and resentful? There's no reason, there's nothing in this story to make us think that the father is anything but extraordinarily loving. The younger son in his outward rebellion and insulting behavior and leaving home refuses to live in the love of his father. The older son in his keeping score, deep resentment, and unwillingness to celebrate his brother's return refuses to live in the love of his father. I don't understand it logically, and yet I also know that this is the human condition so often. We struggle to rest in our belovedness, 
to believe that we are enough to love and be loved without conditions. The sons may have chosen different paths, but really they were the same path. They did not know how to accept and live in their father's love. After a talk that Father Gregory Boyle gave about his work with gang member rehabilitation in Los Angeles, a man came up to him after one of his talks and said, said to him, I notice you never mentioned forgiveness in your books. And after thinking another moment, Father Boyle said, you know, you're right. I think we settle for just forgiveness when we're being offered mercy. I think we settle for just forgiveness when we're being offered mercy. Is it possible that God does not need to forgive us because God jumps straight to mercy? Father Greg uses this story of the prodigal son to make his point. He says the father in the gospel runs to his son while he is still a long way off. Find me anywhere in that story where the father forgives his son. He doesn't. He doesn't settle for forgiveness. He rushes to mercy. He just says, you're here. The father has the mystical view. He sees the trauma, the wound, the pain, the addiction, the mental illness in his kid. And he saw all the things that led his son to take off in the first place. Father's hope and our invitation in his work with uh, gang members at Homeboy Industries is that this son will touch the center of his pain, go through it, not avoid it, and come out the other side. Mercy is better because it is always reverent of complexity. Mercy is better because it is always reverent of complexity. Forgiveness is the step towards mercy. Pope Francis says, that's the name of God, mercy. It sees the whole person always and is never derailed by the egregious act. Mercy is the name of God if God is like the Father in this story. This thought has really stuck with me in the last few weeks because so much of our theology and our liturgy and the way we think about God is oriented towards forgiveness, right? I mean, that's how you think. I mean, just this morning, I found myself thinking a thought that I wasn't happy about and I knew I shouldn't be thinking, and I kind of sent up a quick, forgive me, God, and I thought, what if instead I said, heal me, God? What if instead I said, help me to rest in your love, God? Am, am I settling for forgiveness as a quick covering over when, when actually there's a father, a God waiting there with arms open in mercy, who doesn't merely just forgive me, but sees me, wants my wholeness, wants to heal me, Mercy takes us out of, of wronging and forgiving that kind of language into talking about our wounding and seeking healing. Mercy takes us out of the conversation of wronging and forgiving into talking about our wounding and seeking healing. Now, I'm not saying we should 
we don't need forgiveness. Because I think that's a very human need that we have and, and often is the step that we are taking when we're moving towards mercy. Forgiveness and the journey of forgiveness has been incredibly powerful in my own life in moving to deeper compassion and deeper mercy. But I also think it's worth considering if God actually needs to forgive us or if God just gets to skip over that because God sees all of us and loves us the way we are. Something to think about. <laughs> Brene Brown, in her new book, Atlas of the Heart, says, we must align the love we feel with the way we actually show up for each other. We must align the love we feel with the way we actually show up for each other. So how do we live in mercy? It's simple to say that, that God is mercy, that we want to live in an economy of mercy and compassion and healing and wholeness. But it takes so many of us a lifetime to learn. If you were able to be here last week and hear Ann Hillman, who is 86, saying, just two months ago, I finally learned what it means to do this. We're always learning how to live in mercy, always going deeper. And so this is where our word for today comes in, which is connect. How do we connect ourselves to love, connect ourselves to that stream of mercy? In this story, we see two sons who resist connection and a father who knows no disconnection at all. His heart is always open. He is always waiting. We see the sons struggle to, to connect the love they receive, and we, we feel with them their actions and responses. I know what it's like to, to just want to, to leave home. I know what it's like to be resentful when someone else gets something that I think I deserve. So we start with two movements, basic movements. The first is just the move inward to move to internalize this love, to pay attention to every bit of resistance within ourselves, to where we run away, to where we are resentful, and to be able to begin to verbalize and express what is preventing us from living in love as an internal job. Again, this book that uh, I'm reading, the Brene Brown book, Atlas of the Heart, so helpful because she's naming different kinds of emotions and having just even that name for, oh, yeah, that's kind of me. Um, I, I feel resentful sometimes, or yes, I'm envious, and, and this is how it looks. That, that starts to do good inward work on us, where we stay, work on staying clear and clean and open inside. That's move number one. Move number two is just the move outward. Father Boyle says that, that the thing that they work on at Homeboy Industries is just two things, to listen and love. Listen to the trauma and the wounding in others. Know that we are all so much more than we see on the outside and be gracious with each other. And keep moving to being like the father in the story, opening your arms wide. These are the movements of following Jesus. This is what we're called to do and to be in the story. May it be so. Amen.